All right, well, welcome to episode number three of the Tunes Mate podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Ray. And this week, it's so interesting how I keep looking back at all the music that keeps getting posted on, on the blog. And what continually comes up is there are certain songs that at the time they were banned, they weren't played, and then... I don't know if it's just human nature that after a while, all of a sudden, it's okay now to play that song. One that comes to mind for a while there was Janet Jackson. You remember the whole uh, wardrobe malfunction that happened? What was that, the 2001 Super Bowl? Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually it was 2004, so it was exactly 15 years ago. Yeah, 15 years ago. Yeah. And ever since that moment, it seemed all of a sudden, Janet Jackson, no songs were played anymore. Her catalog went off the charts and anything new that she released fizzled there seemed to be some controversy around you know obviously that event but then any of her new music seemed to be controversial so there seems like if we were to categorize why music doesn't get played either it's the content maybe it was ahead of its time oh rock and roll music you know we can't play that the the backbeat or it could be an actually event that happened something that the artist did or said and that seems to cause why songs don't seem to get played. I mean, is there something from your side that you see that why all of a sudden music just doesn't get played? So, you know, I think there's always a lot of factors involved. The thing that's interesting to me with Janet Jackson, and so, yeah. you know, the thing that sort of brings this out on our blog is that I mean, 25 years ago was Janet Jackson's heyday. She was right in the middle of the songs from her Janet album, 25 years ago right now anytime any place was in the top five just peaked at a, a at number two but that album that's the way love goes again if you know had a bunch oh, of top a- 10 hits that's the way love goes was the biggest something like eight weeks at number one back in uh summer of 93 my favorite janet jackson song of all time is again which was on that album and that hit number one in the winter that 93 94 and so you know 25 years ago janet jackson was the the pinnacle of her career really her third straight successful album she she went on to continue to have uh, big hits and you're right that there was this this noticeable downtick in janet's popularity after the 2004 super bowl and of course we remember the the wardrobe malfunction the the showing of her boob on national television and the the sort of scandal that involved with that the interesting thing to me is that every year around the super bowl there's this twitter hashtag that goes off and it says janet jackson appreciation day really and the idea yeah the idea that janet took too much of the blame for that and what's noticeable to me with that one is that, you know, there were two people involved with that, and the other one was Justin Timberlake. Uh-huh. And in fact, his career quite took off after that. You know, he, he went on to have, I mean, the last 15 years have been quite successful to him. And in fact, he was recently brought back to do the Super Bowl halftime show. And so from a I mean, I study culture and I study identity, et cetera. Hmm. And we talk about that, that, you know, this sort of perpetuated a pattern of the woman getting blamed for things when, well, you know, they were both involved. And so to me, it's it's interesting because it did. There is a clear mark there in Janet Jackson's career. And there's a whole group of folks, and I'm one of them. I, I tweet out Janet Jackson Appreciation Day who will recognize that she kind of maybe took too much of the fall for that. Now, the other sort of side of that is that Janet Jackson, you know, by the time this happened, let's see, she's almost 40. 
Right. You know, she's sort of hitting the the downside of her career anyway. In the last podcast, we talked about that idea of aging, right? And right. The twentieth anniversary, the twenty fifth anniversary. Well, you know, by two thousand four, she's almost at the twentieth anniversary of the Control album, which was the you know when she first really hmm. wasn't her first hit, but or, or her first song to appear on the chart or anything. But it's when she really hit the big time, and so she, you know she was really sort of at what's historically would have been the the sort of down part of her career. Mm-hmm. And whereas Justin Timberlake, who's a decade and a half younger, was sort of on the upswing anyway. Now maybe maybe that plays a part there too. Yeah, you know, but it, that, it's always an interesting example to me. It is, and what blows me away is Janet Jackson has so many hits. I mean, it's yep. it's unbelievable of her catalog, and she recently was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this last yep. class, yep. and she didn't perform. That that was what blew me away was that you know you had you know Def Leppard and some of the other bands that you know been waiting a while to get in. And she didn't perform. So that also made me think, is there still some weird aura that's out there around Janet Jackson? Maybe it was her choice. I know that she had to go through a lot. But there's a lot of artists that have gone through that. They've, mm-hmm. We've talked about it before. Hugh Lewis in the news. All of a sudden, they're off the charts. And it could just be they fizzled. They, they hit the end of their popularity and they go down. But then, like we said, there's very controversial moments you know i was looking at one of the songs that was just posted recently i put up this misheard lyrics i'm having trouble saying that but it's with informer and back in the day i had a friend that thought the song was saying the farmer which i thought was funny but snow the artist was criticized back in at that time of wait a minute you grew up in the suburbs of toronto and you're saying that you have some kind of street credit or something. And then all of a sudden, there, you know, even though it was a number one hit, it immediately fell off and was not played at the same caliber of something like Ice Ice Baby or, or something in that same era. And now all of a sudden, there's a resurgence. And there was a recent artist that went ahead, I think Daddy Yankee, it's called Con Calma, that's out right now that samples it and he's featured on it. So it is interesting how they're kind of tipping your hat going back to snow but there was a period there where he was criticized and all of a sudden it seemed like the popularity of the song immediately went out and our friends millie vanilli (laughs) in the same category yeah Yeah, no i mean millie vanilli right 25 years ago uh right now right they were the number one song in the country and in fact it's interesting with millie vanilli so their first hit was girl you know it's true which in some ways is sort of their big hit right? right the remembered one but that actually went to number two and so their first hit their first number one hit the first of three number one hits was baby don't forget my number mm-hmm. and that was yeah it was exactly 30 years ago 1989 and, and millie vanilli yeah that's i mean that's the i think that's one of the the big cases here, right? That mm-hmm. here's this group, here's this duo. And of course, you know, for 19, for one year from spring of 89 to spring of 90, they were huge. They were it. Oh, they were so huge. And they were, I mean, they had, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five straight top five hits. They, that's all they had. Actually, they won the Grammy award that was later taken away because of course the scandal happens that we find out they weren't even the singers, uh, Rob Pilatus and Fab Morgan. These aren't even the guys who were singing this stuff. It was all a big scam. And of course this is, you know, this is one of pop music's biggest scandals ever, right? I mean, people who weren't alive back then, who didn't know much about Millie Vanilli really 
they know the the idea at least that right. oh yeah Millie Vanilli right or and people those of us who were that you know alive then those of us who were into pop music then this was a really big deal because here was this this group that this duo that was huge and now suddenly we find out you know that well it was all a big scam you know this was this was somebody else singing uh, but the interesting thing to me with that is that there are folks and to some degree I'm even one of these who still like Millie Vanilli. Right. I mean, we can listen to that song or we can listen to that album and say, I still like that. It's you know? catchy. And of course, Millie Vanilli went on to not do anything else ever again. And they tried. Of course, one of, and one of the members, uh, you know, killed himself a few years later. Right. But that idea that here's this like you were getting at that idea of this stuff happens. And can it affect whether you like the music or not? It seems right? like, and of it. course, with Millie Vanilli, it affected it. They never did an, another thing again. Well, they, they tried, but, you know, they were never going to be successful again. But to some degree, some at least some of us, we still like that album. We still like that that music. We still listen to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's on I mean, I know they took back their Grammys and everything. I mean, that, yeah, that, did, yeah. that had to hurt. But it's songs like that. It's That's what I keep going back to is I, I, I keep thinking about this topic that it's the music that, that stands through the test of time, even though... You know, all the controversies there. I mean, you think about it. I can go all the way from Michael Jackson, who's been accused of many things. His music is still very strong, gets played a lot. You can go all the way down to Kurt Cobain, who, you know, a couple decades later wrote incredible music, but burned out very fast. And his whole death is is very much documented. And there's also some uh, just side note here that maybe Courtney Love uh, broke into his vault later and recorded a lot of his songs. But mm-hmm. if you think about it, even though there's this kind of aura around it and the music dips down, the song is so powerful that it stays. And I think people are forgiving to some point. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I think it, it depends on the artist. It depends on what the scandal was. And then it depends yeah. on the song, right? It, it depends on how significant that song is. The one, of the one of the ones that strikes me, we haven't written about it any time recently on the site, mm-hmm. but as you talk about that, a song that, that strikes me as one that, it, I mean, I still hear it when I listen to 80s on 8, I'll, I'll still hear it, but it's really not, I guess the word is appropriate today, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is uh, Turning Japanese by The Vapors. Oh, yeah. Right? So here's this song, you know, and it's supposed to be this... This thing about masturbation, right? That your your eyes squint, you're turning Japanese, right? You know, and but at the same time, the whole idea—I mean, it's incredibly racist at the same time, right? This idea of you know a squinty-eyed Japanese people, and so yeah. you know, back in the early '80s, you know, the the culture was different, right? That the perceptions of uh, jokes about race were different. I remember growing up at the time as a kid, you know, hearing and even making some of those jokes that I would now not even make in a moment, not even, you know, consider saying. Right. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a a relic of the racism of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, well, why? Well, because music is something that people remember, people mark time with, people will tend to forget or forgive some of this stuff, right? You know, or another one, and it did have some controversy back in the day, was uh, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. Oh, yeah. I remember that line. He's got the line, the little faggot, right? Mm -hmm. And so he says that. And of course, you know, that's something that, again, I remember in the 80s growing up, but otherwise I I wouldn't say that word today, and it wouldn't be considered appropriate to say that word. But in, you know, 1985, 
right? The culture wasn't as as inclusive toward sexuality. And and in fact, it was a little bit of a controversy. And Mark Knopfler wrote the song for Dire Straits. He was asked about it. And he was, you know, he was actually approached about it. And his his sort of answer was, well, that's what the guy said. I was listening to this delivery guy watching the TV, watching mm. a rock star. That's where the lines come from, right? Look at those, look at those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know, um, mm-hmm. You know, um, they're not stupid. You know, they play their guitar on the MTV, right? You know, that he was quoting this guy that he heard doing this and that that's the word the guy said. And so he's like, well, that's why I did it was because that guy used that word. And of course, that song went to number one and it still gets played. And it's, you know, Heavily. it's a, it's a one of the prominent songs of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, the video is iconic. And what's funny oh. is, I, if I remember, Turning Japanese, I don't even think that went top 40, right? Didn't that go like 42 or something? I'm always off my numbers. You know what? I actually don't remember. Yeah, yeah Boy, I'm, I, for some reason, kind I, of. Uh, I thought it did, but I'd have maybe to. Maybe I'm off. I'm kind of. A, I'm a little rusty on turning Japanese, yeah. so I don't remember. Um, but that is amazing, though. You're right. So that's interesting too. Is the music that's played? I mean, that song gets played on '80s. Like you said, the Dire Straits song went straight to number one. It was, I would have to say, their biggest hit that I can think of. Put them, made them, yeah. made them MTV stars. And what's interesting about that is, so that song had very big video presence, and and then I'm also starting to think about other songs that get played continually too. So think about this. So Dire Straits, it was kind of a summer anthem. It gets played a lot. But then if I were even switch into another topic that you started making me think about is this last year, you remember that Baby It's Cold Outside? They stopped yep. playing that song on some radio right. stations because right. of the reference. But that song, just like Money for Nothing, was written in a different time period. So I'm wondering, are songs just starting to catch up to us now? And that is going to happen more and more often. I think we're at a we're at a, a point culturally where there's there's going to be some reexamination of some of that stuff in the same way that we see it going on with with other symbols with uh, uh, statues and monuments etc. Oh, yeah, I, I think we're at a point where yeah we're going to see that kind of and so yeah your example of uh, baby it's cold outside is the most prominent one that we've seen over the past few years and I'm it's it's interesting to me to see where it's getting applied and where it's not right so. You know, some of this hmm. 80s stuff, maybe part of it is that, you know, there's that whole thing out there where people don't take the 80s seriously. Yeah. I do. We, are, we know that I do. I know and you do. Know that there are pe- <laughs> people like me out there who do, right? But, you know, culturally, there's that we don't take the 80s seriously kind of stuff that's out there. You know, the 80s are kind of just, well, it was the era of big hair and uh, color and, and gaudiness. And so... It was all just kind of play, and of course it was those those silly Gen X folks, you know, starting to grow up a little bit, though they never really grew up, just get mm-hmm. older, right? And so there's that sense that everything in the 80s was kind of just just fake and ridiculous, and and of course I don't agree with that, but that's that prevailing sense that's out there, and so maybe that, that actually keeps some of that stuff from being critiqued as much. Mm-hmm. You know, now, of course there are, there are things from the 80s that are getting critiqued, you know, and again, it's based on who who is it, what they did. You know, the Cosby Show, right? And we're coming right. up on the and September will be the 35th anniversary of when that debuted. Of course, you know that's that got pulled from everything because of just how heinous all this stuff that 
Bill Cosby did was right. There was a point where people like, look, we just don't even want to be associated with him, you know. Right. But then, but then we have examples from the '80s, from the '90s, etc., where things kind of blow over, right? So, um, Asa Base, for instance, and we blogged about them recently. Yeah. And uh, you know, a number of years ago, what about five, six years ago, uh, one of the members of them uh, of Asa Base was associated with white supremacism that he had been associated with and connected to. Now he disavowed all of it, right? But there was this this little news news thing for a little while. Again, I think it was six years ago, talking about that Ulf Ekberg of, of Asa Base was connected to hmm. and part of a sort of white supremacist band. And, you know, I know people who remember that. I know people who mention that when they talk about Asa Base. Then I've also seen people who, like, just found that out, right? Or, right. Yeah, no, this who, is the first time I heard of that. Yeah, yeah, we've never heard of it. You know, it never quite did anything. But then again, you know, Asa Base was, was you a- know, is Asa Base really something that, and maybe this is the same thing with the vapors well, or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's not like we're talking about a band that is iconic, right? For a few years in the 90s, Ace right. of Base was a really big well, thing. Well, and what's fascinating about Ace of Base, because I was looking it up recently when I saw you post that, was that it was the two guys and the two girls. The two girls were sisters, and one of them left back in the early 2000s, and then the other one left in the late 2000s. So the two guys went out and got two new singers and tried to revamp the band, but it never took off. So yeah. everyone still remembers their string of hits, you know, that album that had, you know, um, I Saw the Sign and um, what was Don't it, All That She Wants? And, yep. I always get oh. that one messed up with Duran Duran. <laughs> oh, so, all She Wants is? <laughs> yes. It all, I, I almost said All She Wants right. is, yeah, yeah. It always gets messed up in my, my mind. But it is interesting how later down the road, whatever you do can get tied to it, and then that could definitely impact your music. And I was even thinking about, what was the band, Chumbawamba? What was that, Tub Thumping? They were linked to something. I I can't remember. I thought it was political. But for a while there, there were some stations that were like, oh, I'm not sure we should play the song. But that song, I believe, went to number one. It was a huge hit back in, what, 97? Something like that? Yeah, so, okay, a couple things, right? So... First yeah. of all, I did want to clarify mm-hmm. uh, the vapors. I did look it up just to be sure. Okay. Uh, the vapors went to number thirty-six, so they, <sighs> they were, you're right. You're right in the ballpark there, right? right. That it kind of just barely broke the top forty, mm-hmm. right? So, so Chumbawamba is an interesting one because yeah, they're, you know they're they're one of these classic one-hit wonders, right? Yeah. That, you know they had tub thumping. Uh, back in uh, 97, 98. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it, it went number one uh, elsewhere. It went to number six in the U.S. Oh, six. So, okay. Yeah. It was a big, but I mean, you know. It, it was, was big. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. You know, I'll and, and that number six is kind of, it's one of those songs that you would have, you know, I always say there are these songs that you would have thought went to number one, but didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those, right. That you would have thought did better than it actually did. So, but it, you know, it still was a big top 10. It was their only top 10. It was only top uh, hot 100 hit in the U.S. Wow. Right? But they did have a string of hits in the in the U.K. And right after that, they you know they hit hit in the U.K. in the top 40 a couple other times. Chumbawamba is interesting because Chumbawamba is actually it's kind of the opposite of Ace, Ace of Base politically. Uh, Chumbawamba is actually uh, connected to far leftist politics. Gotcha. And so, yeah, one of the the concerns that some folks have had about Chumbawamba is the association with the far left, like the sort of radical uh, activist left. Now, if you're you're sort of of that mindset, that's not going to bother you. But a lot of sort of mainstream pop radio 
is going to be a little more uh, hesitant with Chumbawamba because the association with that. And of course, that song, though, you know, pissing the night away. I think I remember you telling a story years about years ago, DJ and and having to explain to, to somebody that it was kissing the night away and, you know, so that they wouldn't get mad you were playing it. But, you know, I mean, it's a song, right, about a guy who's out drinking, uh, telling his next door neighbor, you know, he's fine. Don't you know, don't cry for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has a whiskey drink and a lager drink. And, and the idea that it was kind of controversial, not the right word, but it was, yeah. it was risque, right? It was you definitely know, it was, risque. It was pushing it a little bit. Yeah, there's so many songs like that. I mean, I, I, as we're talking, I started thinking about, I know it started talking about this when we began our conversation, but I keep thinking about the 50s. 1955, that's supposed to be when rock and roll started. And, right. you know, there was so much controversy about, oh, well, you know, the, the music and the backbeat and, you know, Elvis shaking his hips. And when was it on Ed Sullivan's show where they only show yep. him from like the waist up because they didn't want to see him, you know, shaking around the screen? And I even think about that and the Beatles and as all this music just kept coming out, how controversial it was and, and how it seemed to build on top of each other. You know, as the decades grew on, the music started really tackling more provocative subjects as they kept growing. But the music was what kept it going. The songs, the not only the lyrical content, but the melody and the backbeat and everything, that's what holds today. Well, I think that, you know, we've touched on that, right? The idea that these same kind of rhythms and chord patterns, etc., you know, show up yeah. over and over and over again, and that's the basis of music. Though I think with the with the being provocative, I think there's always kind of a a balance there. Right. Mm. So I think part of the appeal of rock and roll from the 50 and even going back to before rock and roll, if you go back to even like Robert Johnson and the sort of, you know, the 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 roots of rock and roll in blues and gospel and country, et cetera. But when rock and roll really, you know, sort of comes alive in the in the late 50s there. And like you said, yeah, 55 is considered when rock and roll um, not necessarily started, but when it hit the big time. Right. Mm-hmm. When when it was a, a national phenomenon. And but that there's there's that that sort of balance there where the right provocativeness at the right time is what catches people so mm-hmm. madonna's like a virgin did that right right another one that comes to mind you know the, our t- your title title that you just started is uh, good vibrations right okay and i think this title title really connects to a number of things we've talked about first of all we've got marky mark and the funky bunch from 1991 right <laughs> yeah. went, went to number one back in 91 and you know mark Wahlberg's another one kind of like snow right where he's got this this street cred but come on right you know to a certain extent should he but he, you know that that album was kind of based off of having that image anyway right so he does mm-hmm. uh, this good vibrations that the, in this this uh, hip hop style of 1991 goes on to do uh, also does a, a cover of Reading the Velvet Underground's Walk on the Wild Side, mm-hmm. right? But the other one is the Beach Boys, and the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations was provocative at its time because one, the type of music, the layering of the music was I don't know if I want to call it psychedelic, but it was in that style, right? Sure. It was it was weird. It was you know it it, it it could be compared to like having like a, a drug reaction, right. Or a drug hallucination. And of course the, the, the song you're giving me good vibrations, right. Was in the style of those songs going back into the 1950s and actually going back into blues before that, mm-hmm. that had uh, sexual, in, sexual innuendo built into them. Right. So 
So it was a song that uh, was a big hit for the Beach Boys that was provocative on a number of terms and was provocative in the right way. I mean, I remember in the late 1970s, early 80s, Good Vibrations was my favorite Beach Boys. It probably still is my favorite Beach Boys song because of the feel of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think part of its lasting success and the fact that it was still played a decade, a decade and a half later and was still pretty pretty significant and it was i mean it was used i remember it being used for a sun kiss commercial in the 1980s and that uh and it's been used for other things like that part of it part of its lasting appeal was it hit the right amount of provocativeness without going too far you know it's just enough to catch folks it was the right amount of provocativeness mm -hmm. yeah i think what you're saying is what i'm getting so far is that it's got to be the right balance and it's it's about timing it's also all those ingredients we talked about it it's you know lyrically music the melody everything together and that goes back to what we're talking about the timing and i did want to say there was something interesting i know we always weave something in with weird al in these conversations probably because of me but it's definitely me there's been a couple times where al had some controversy he had a song mm -hmm. There was a song by james blunt called you're beautiful and he did a parody called you're pitiful and the record company said, you know, James just came on the scene. It's too early for you to parody somebody like that. So he ended up having to just release it as an internet single, which was the first time that he ever did that, where he just released it free on the internet. And then he also had some controversy with Coolio, with mm -hmm. Amish Paradise and Gangsta's Paradise. He recorded the song, but down the road, he's like, well, the record company said it was okay. And Coolio's like, well, I never said it was okay. But he already had released it, <laughs> and right. there was some definite controversy. So you can get controversy also with not only particular content that you're releasing, but also from other artists, and there can be battles between artists as well that don't turn out well. Right. Well, and then on the, on the flip side, right, so we've got the, the sort of controversy, and then but we've also got the sort of lasting significance of some songs. And one song that just keeps... One of the things that it just posted this week, this past week, that, that keeps coming to mind is 25 years ago, uh, Warren G and Nate Dogg hit number two with Regulate. Yeah. Right? And, you know, and it, it doesn't have controversy. In fact, it's it, this is what I'm sort of getting at, the opposite. So, you know, Warren G went on to have a number of top 40 hits after that. But this is the song that people remember by Warren G and Nate Dogg, right? You mm -hmm. know, Regulate. And, it, and, of course, it drew on top 40 hit from the 80s. Right. Uh, I keep forgetting. Right. I keep forgetting Michael McDonald. And at the same time, it's a song that sticks around. Uh, I, not like I hear it on the radio a lot. I'll hear it on 90s on nine or something. But it's something that I can mention to folks who were either very young at the time, like infants even, or who weren't even born at the time. And a yeah, I don't, not not everybody knows it, but a good number of folks know that song. I can you know make a comment about regulate or regulator or say something like that and be <laughs> like, oh yeah, Warren G and Nate Dog, right? There's something about that mix that they took, they sampled. I keep forgetting, and they they sampled it in a way that built on it so effectively that in some ways it actually even outlast the original that they sample yeah that that is amazing and that also makes me think about when an artist covers a song too how the cover can now be 
more significant than the actual original. But yep. it is fascinating. I, there, we've done a series on the site where we've done you know famous samples like Joe Cocker's song uh, that was sampled. I think it's uh, "Woman to Woman" was sampled yep. for Tupac's Puff Daddy. I think no, Dr. Dre, "California Love," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that song, same thing. You you mentioned something about California, and you're going to get a couple answers, but California love is going to come up, <laughs> and that song right. is just lasting. So you wonder, and that that is fascinating. So we talked about controversies and how songs have lasted, even through controversies. And then at the same time, there are certain songs that are going to sunset just because of the fact that our culture is changing. But then there is another subset of songs that are going to continue to flourish because of the fact (laughs) that they were not controversial and they sampled something that everyone knew before and continued its lineage. Now that's strong. Right. Well, and yeah, and it's interesting. One of the places you see this a lot is I always think part of a, a song's significance is how it gets played out even beyond being remade. Right. So it's one thing that musicians use your song, respect your song, remake your song, even do better with your song, etc. But then when do other elements of popular culture take your song and do stuff with it? So uh, I recently saw a commercial, trying to remember what it was for, but it was using Walking in Memphis from Mark Cohn. Hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of folks, that's probably the only Mark Cohn song they know, right? He had some other songs, uh, Silver Thunderbird, which was actually has been remade by a number of folks. And he just turned 60 the other day, right? So this is uh, Mark Cohn's 60th birthday. And, uh, but that walking in Memphis has been called like a, a sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's been hailed over and over and over again as this really, really good song. And this, this one song that, you know, from the early nineties that really caught not only the feel of rock and roll, but just how good music can be. I've seen it sort of talked about in those terms and that idea that things that get played out and used in commercials they get referenced in in television shows, in films, etc. Right, and again, that I think goes back to, to the other thing. Something can survive controversy when they've got songs like that. So, hmm. let me take this back to Janet Jackson for a minute. I'm gonna. I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but I remember when it was announced that Janet Jackson. You mentioned, you know, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this mm-hmm. year. And I remember when when that was announced, and I remember somebody on Twitter, I don't know who or what or what, you know, I I happened to just see it on Twitter. Somebody mentioned something about, well, Janet Jackson doesn't have the iconic song the way that Michael Jackson or Prince or Bruce Springsteen or somebody else does, right? And this was their argument that, you know, Janet Jackson, yeah, she's been a great performer, you know, for 20 some years, you know, hitting tons of hits, etc., but doesn't have that that one or two songs that you just kind of, wow, you know, that you just kind of remember as vital to your life. And of course, all kinds of people wrote in and said, oh, oh, bull crap. Oh, yeah, well, I this song or, you know, whatever. Right. And they they chose any number of songs and a lot of them tended to be that's the way love goes was on there. Some of the stuff from control was on there. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and people arguing and stuff from Rhythm Nation was on there and some of the later stuff, too. And people arguing that, you know, no, this person was wrong. But I think that maybe to some people, at least, Janet Jackson isn't in the same 
sentences Michael Jackson, apparently to this person, because there aren't these one or two or three songs that just go wow about, right? Or that, that were sort of life-changing to them. You know, the thing with Michael Jackson is, yeah, there's all the controversy with him in, in various ways, but things like Billie Jean and Beat It, those became such iconic songs of the 1980s that that are go-to songs over and over and over again and again i don't want to necessarily say i agree that janet jackson fits that uh, but i think that certainly we see that some folks are making that argument and maybe maybe that's part of it right that you know uh, even millie vanilli again there's some folks who still listen to them and think it's great but at the same time is does millie vanilli have that lasting significance that the michael jackson songs do and that money for nothing do so money for nothing can survive the controversy because it just became such a, an iconic thing. So I wonder as as you're, as you're talking about Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, Dire Straits. I know we've had a a good you know resemblance of music over the last you know few years, decades. But I start thinking about in the future, <laughs> as songs continue to get played, if you're seeing a song, let's say there's a song being played. And you're getting the download of, you know, the background of it, the meaning of it, everything on it. Do you think most people in the world just want to listen to the song and aren't really concerned about the history of it? Or is there just something about good music and being associated with other brands? Because we talk about brands a lot. So if my song, for example, I've been seeing a lot of it with Queen. I saw something, I want it all. Remember that song? Right. I think it's part of a Walmart ad. I think it's something like that. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Queen is everywhere. So I'm just thinking, as long as it's associated with a strong brand and it's a good song, that'll overcome things. Or as we keep growing as a culture and there's more and more information coming out about all these artists and songs, will that eventually start curbing people's playlists? It's a good question. I don't know if... I have an answer. I think that uh, I think you're right to point to brand. Queen is a heck of a brand. You know, uh, people uh, people still listen to Queen. I mean, Queen is is go, crosses generations, right? So mm-hmm. baby boomers listen to Queen in the '70s, and those of us from Gen X, uh, you know, we grew up on Queen in the '80s and continue to listen to it. And there are millennials and Gen Z folks who love Queen. I think that th- there are those videos out there, those YouTube videos. And they play old songs for little kids and the kids, you know, are like, they show the kids reactions and oh, you know, yeah. a lot of times the kids are like, what the heck is this? Right. <laughs> They'll play queen. And a lot of those kids are like, yeah, this is cool. You know, there's something hmm. about queen. Uh, there may be something about Michael Jackson. Uh, there's something about the Beatles. What about right? REO Speedwagon? How about, how, how about Asia? Well, what, what, do, what about, uh, what about body count? Last, right. Those, I mean, there, there are pockets. I mean, I'll, you know, I, I was singing Asia last night, you know, um, what about Katy Perry? Uh, well, that it's going to be, I, I don't know. We're going to have to see, right. Who's who. And that's, a, that's the interesting question, right? That's, that's the, the, the $64 million question that, that folks in the record industry are always trying to, to figure out is who's the artist that today, 25 years from now, people are still going to be like, okay, wow, about. Michael right? Buble. What? Michael Buble. I'm just kidding. I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm, I'm throwing some names out there. Michael Buble in a, in a Harry Connick kind of way, right? You know? Um, true. Is it true? <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, 
Katy Perry has a certain amount of, of significance today, right? But mm-hmm. 25 years ago, is Katy Perry going to be what Queen is, you know, now, you know what Queen has been? Uh, Maybe Jennifer I Lopez. Know. I don't know. And I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can tell. I think you got to see it play out and it, it just depends on how the culture moves and how things shift. And, uh, but you're, I think you're right to point to brand. Yeah. Well, and I think a good thing for us to think about is now as artists, as you said this in the past, there's a lot more featuring, you know, Katy Perry joined American Idol on Lionel Richie and was it Luke Bryan and more exposure on more channels. And think about it. Jay-Z and Beyonce Mm -hmm. together as a couple, super brands, like a super team. Then you had Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, super team. So a lot of these celebrities are joining forces to increase their brand. If you think about it, remember, was it Priscilla Presley and Michael Jackson? Yep. <laughs> they got married Early at 90s. one point. And, and uh, people were like, what's this about? And I think a lot of people just immediately went to, well, they want to increase their brand. Well, I mean, that's nothing, that's nothing new. James Taylor and Carly Simon. Right. True. We can go back to the seventies. We can go back to the sixties. And, uh, uh, was it Marianne faithful and was it Mick Jagger? Yeah. R- right. You mm-hmm. know, um, interesting, you know, you know, I mean, there's always been, even even go back to, uh, you know, uh, June Carter and Johnny cash. True. Right. Right. So there are always these, these couplings that, that happen at points. Romeo and Juliet. Hey, 50 years ago. Right. <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, okay, so as we're kind of winding down here mm-hmm. and thinking about, you know, what's what's coming up. So the interesting thing, and this hadn't dawned on me, but I heard it mentioned on the 60s on 6 the other day. And maybe this is a, a sort of point for me to kind of end on here as, as we sort of think forward. Um, one of those songs that, uh, you know, we talk about one-hit wonders. We talk about does it have lasting significance, does it not? I don't know if it was controversial, but it certainly was issue-related. So we're coming up on the uh, 50th anniversary of when In the Year 2525 by Zager and Evans hit number one on Billboard's Hot 100 charts. And I knew that, but I, I and I guess I would have thought of this, but it was pointed out to me on 60s and 6s this past week that, I can't remember the DJ's name, but um, you know if I could, I'd give him credit, but I just don't remember. But he mentioned that that was the number one song at the, when, we, when the U.S. landed on the moon. Because it, it went to number one here in the next week, and it's 50 years ago, wow. and it was number one for six weeks. So it was interesting how at the time that, that we were landing on the moon, the U.S. was landing on the moon, people were also thinking about the ramifications of what we're doing today for the future. Because in the year 2525 is a song about you know what we're doing today in terms of technology and machinery and what we're doing to the environment and where that might lead us and you know kind of it might not lead us in good places and so it was it's interesting that at the time that the US was landing on the moon this song that was sort of reflective about the future was was enjoying its a 6 week run at number 1 and i remember if i do recall you had the 45 of that i did yes yeah i remember i remember looking at it going wow that year whenever that happens that's amazing and it is true. I think a lot about what we have cover on our podcast is how everything blends together and what the future will hold. And honestly, we don't know. 
but there are a lot of great songs that have survived through all of this. And I think as we continue to, you know, produce new music, there's always going to be threads of, of songs that are going to be continually sampled or covered or said, well, we'll, we'll pay some homage to that. Like, for example, I remember Cheryl Crow did, what was it? All I want to do is have some fun. I, I believe that, I don't know how many number one hits she had, but I know that that was a number one hit. But she always joked about the fact that the riff is from, oh man, it's going to hurt me now, Ray. But she always, I saw her live once and she started playing the riff of the other song, which was um, Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Deal. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> she, she basically, either she covered that song and just wrote all I want to do. Or later after she wrote it, she realized that she covered that song. Right, right. So we don't know how these artists are going to continue to survive, but we do know that good music is good music. And we're going to keep covering it here on tunes, mate. You voted for good vibrations by the beach boys. Didn't you? Yes, I did. And I voted for good vibrations by Marky Mark and the funky yeah. bunch. <laughs> That's because you went with your namesake, man. Perhaps. <laughs> For me, it was always the, that keyboard riff. Yeah. There's some, yeah. There's something about that keyboard riff that always puts me in a good mood. But to me, both songs are, are tied in my mind. I, I love both. But just for some reason, I think you're right. I think I went for the namesake. You got me. That's fine. You, you called me on the carpet. See, if there was, no, if, there was if there was Ray Ray and the Funky Bunch, I think you... <laughs> <laughs> you may vote for that too. <laughs> it could happen. May, may, maybe one of uh, Mark Wahlberg's offspring may may have a have a son named Ray, and they could come out with a, a rap hit in the future. You never know. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, we've got plenty more coming. Please send us your comments, topics, any ideas you would like us to cover. We are going to continue to keep jamming up the tunes. Thanks for listening.